0: You're listening to Food Confidence, a podcast about approachable health and imperfect food,
1: all for the sake of the next generation. I'm Jennifer Bravo. And I'm Andrea Paul. We are two non-diet health professionals on a mission to empower parents and caregivers in raising food and body-confident kids. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Food Confidence Podcast. Today we're talking with Leah Hackney, who's a registered and licensed dietitian, as well as a certified specialist in pediatric nutrition.
0: In our conversation with Leah, we talk about how she got into intuitive eating and health at every size. We talk about how weight stigma plays out in a pediatric setting, and a few tips on language that we can use as parents and caregivers to help foster a healthy relationship around food and body.
1: We really love our conversation with Leah, not only because of her expertise in the area of pediatric nutrition, but we also chat about her experiences and how they have informed her practice and really fueled her passion for social justice issues such as health at every size. We really think you're going to find this episode informative and encouraging. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Leah. Hi, Leah. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi, thank
2: you so much for having me. It's an honor.
1: Well, we're really excited to talk to you as a fellow dietitian. I'm personally excited to have another dietitian (laughs) on the show. We've connected a little bit through social media and Instagram. So um, I'm a little bit familiar with your work and thought you'd be a really good fit to talk to us today. Mm -hmm. So can you, I know I just already said that you're a registered dietitian. Can you tell us anything else about uh, the work that you do?
2: Yeah, thank you. So I am a registered and licensed dietitian in the States. And I'm also a certified specialist in pediatrics. Really, a lot of the work I did um, in the States, it was at an inpatient hospital, uh, inpatient children's hospital. So that was kind of where I got my first introduction to intuitive eating and haze practice.
0: That's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that introduction? I, I know it's a growing movement and not a lot of people um, have been totally exposed to intuitive eating and health at every size. So what was your journey to discovering that? Absolutely, thanks. So I I really
2: had kind of a long journey. I was at the I was in the inpatient setting and I was seeing a lot of diagnoses that were not necessarily always seen in, you know, the common day or common communities. They were really, you know, some of them were really rare, but then I saw a lot of almost like feeding practices that I noticed um, parents were really struggling with because they're receiving so much information from so many different people and at first when i had heard about intuitive eating and health at every size i was a little bit almost skeptical just because there's so much information out there you know as a dietitian like we're kind of trained to like decipher through all the all the stuff the noise <laughs> yes and so once i kind of like went through all of it and started reading about it and i read the health at every size book i started understanding it was really rooted in Uh, not only natural occurring practices that like infants and kids almost already have already, but it also is rooted in a little bit of social justice. And so it was really important for me to incorporate that into my practice, just so that, you know, I was covering all of the intersections that kids face with nutrition, just because I don't think nutrition is any one faceted problem. If a with a kid is having a nutrition problem or a feeding problem. I think there's so many different things that are
0: affecting that. Mm, and you talk about the the social justice piece of it. How have you seen like the weight stigma play out in pediatrics and family nutrition?
2: Honestly, I've seen it quite often, and I'm, I'm not here to bash any of the practitioners or any of the people that I worked with at the Children's Hospital just because I really valued their work and they, I really respect them, but I think, you know, I, I worked at a teaching hospital, and so I understood that the, the medical interns and residents and doctors you know, their focus was the medicine and the diagnosing and billing and charting and maintaining a hospital and a medical environment. And sometimes I saw the panic when they would have feeding problems or they would have kids who maybe were presenting with disordered eating or eating disorders. And, it, you know, they, they kind of handed off to me in like a, like a scared way. And I think that was actually really relayed to the families as well. Um, which is is kind of unfortunate because I think it was just handed over like okay this one's on you <laughs> and you know there I, there are so many instances I, I won't get into too many specifics of weight stigma but really even within the referral process to a dietitian there was weight stigma um, with thinner bodies and with kiddos and larger bodies on the doctor's end there, getting reimbursement for billing and coding BMIs. And that's something that, you know, they're not really in control of because with insurance companies, that's where they're getting money. And so, you know, it's really kind of hard to fight a system when that's being upheld, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you think we could just circle back? So, you know, we started off talking about the social justice piece of health at every size and we commented on weight stigma. Do you think we could provide, we could just dig into that a little bit more like what weight stigma is and maybe how it might show up in, you know, a hospital setting or just like in society in general?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say the weight stigma is, you know, when you would have a kiddo who is, for example, in in pediatrics, we use growth charts really often just to plot the growth and the height and weight of a kid. And you know, it was really common to see practitioners who would get a kiddo with a growth chart that was, you know, um, maybe they were above the 50th percentile for their age. And what I mean by the 50th percentile is that's like the normal average um, in the United States. And so, you know, they were above this for their weight for their age. And you know, immediately their thought is, you know, this kid is overweight, and this kid is potentially at X, Y, and Z health risks. And that's really a little bit of misinformation just because, you know, now we know, and I think even in one of your other podcasts, you were talking about like the
0: risk for eating disorders, um, that, what's it, 240%, 242 times more likely yes. yeah, than, than diabetes or than type two, type two, type two diabetes, diabetes, excuse me.
2: Yes. And so I think they would, you know, their brain automatically goes towards some chronic diseases that they think this kid is at risk for, when actually, I think they're more at risk for eating disorders. And so I think, you know, you would see a kiddo who is above or even below that 50th percentile, that quote, unquote, normal weight range. And, you know, the ones that were below, you see some practitioners who are saying, you know, you need to gain weight, you need to gain weight, you need to gain weight. And then you see ones that are above that are saying, well, they're going to be at risk for this if they're not losing weight. And, um, you know, that weight stigma was, was really prevalent. And, and it's sad because it was in kiddos who are growing into their bodies. We don't know, unless we're following their entire journey, we don't know what their adult bodies are going to be like.
1: Right. Like that one doctor says it is just a point in time. Absolutely. And, and
2: also we know that, you know, Each kid actually has their own individualized growth pattern and growth curve. It's kind of like that meme, I think, that was going around where it was like, it was compared to Chihuahua and a German Shepherd. Like, (laughs) um, you know, that's what I think of is that, you know, there are some kiddos who are going to be on the lower end of their growth charts. And that's always where they're going to be. And that is actually appropriate for them. There are some kiddos who are on a higher end of their growth charts above what the average is. And that is totally appropriate for them. And and neither one of them is necessarily at risk for any of these chronic illnesses or diseases.
1: Right. That's body diversity, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Now they're all, and there's always exceptions, but we're talking about, you know, kind of just the fact that there, there is body diversity no matter what we're doing.
0: I remember when I first had my my daughter, uh, or I guess I should say my oldest daughter, right. <laughs> um, she was kind of low on the, the charts. And because she was, you know, this was during the new, you know, first three months of tracking, the first month, actually, you know, we were in there kind of all the time because they were pretty concerned about it. And it was really stressful, but she was so healthy looking and like everything was well and like good. Eating well. Yeah, she was eating well and all was fine. Um, But we were going in there for like almost daily weight checks because she hadn't regained her birth weight yet. And it was like almost a month. And I remember one of my best girlfriends said to me, she was like, there's somebody, yes, there's the 50th percentile, but she was like, there has to be somebody on the lower end of that and on the higher end of that. And Uh she was like, there have to be kids on all points on that chart in order for it to be relevant and like to have the context. Right. And I was like, that's such a good point. You know, like each kid is different and that's what that's for. And that gave me such good peace of mind to just like, know that
1: somebody has to represent some part of that scale, you know? Right. Right. And I'm sure a month into motherhood, like going into the doctor's (sighs) office for stressful. yeah. Yeah,
2: my heart really goes out to parents who are struggling with this just because they're receiving so much information from diet culture already. And then they're also struggling with medical professionals, you know, kind of inserting a little bit of their own bias, unknowingly, it's usually always unknowingly, I want to say most medical professionals really do have the intent to help and serve communities. But we're also reiterating things that we're taught, right. And, you know, the curriculum that's being taught is, you know, larger bodies are at risk for this, and smaller bodies are a little bit more Socially acceptable when really we know that larger and smaller bodies really have differences and they're their unique. And, you know, they're like our risk factors for diseases are not necessarily just with our body size.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you said, a lot of practitioners are kind of using that information to kind of as a jumping off point, rather right. than seeing it as just like part of the, the body or that person, you know, they're using that as a jumping off point, which is maybe what for our listeners to understand what kind of distinguishes somebody who aligns as intuitive eating or health at every size is very clear to not use body or body size as that distinguishing factor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit, before you discovered intuitive eating, would you say that you kind of had an anti-diet approach already? And what was it like for you to kind of transition into intuitive eating and health at every size?
2: Well, I think for me, I, I personally struggled with that dieting mindset just in my own personal life. And, and I was really trying to, you know, if I was struggling with it, I was seeing other people around me struggle with it. It was really hard for me to then turn around and teach it, and to teach that you know this is this is just how you lose weight or this is just what you do, and it 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 didn't really sit well with me ethically. It didn't. I didn't make sense. It wasn't sustainable. I wasn't seeing any any reason for it. And part of the reason why I actually liked pediatrics is because I I I tried to avoid that (laughs) because you know in, in the pediatric setting for the most part practitioners know that they are, that you're trying to get the kid to grow. But I, th- I think with intuitive eating and haze, you know, it really just became something that, you know, a lens to see things through and a lens when you're talking with families, you know, you're using different language and it's, it's, you're reaffirming their story and their struggle and you're, you're meeting them where they're at um, because we, you know, we can't just be forcing information onto people when they're not ready to hear it. And so I think what with intuitive eating and haze, it really just gave me a perspective to see, you know, where they were at in their journey and like really how I
1: could help them. So it sounds like, you know, instead of giving them even more information and maybe adding to their concerns is you step back and listen to what that family or that parent or that child is experiencing. And you can kind of frame your, you know, advice based on that. So it is just a much more, I feel, compassionate way to educate and to support families and parents and caregivers. Absolutely. Yeah, You, you framed it perfectly. Well thanks. <laughs> so how can parents in whether it's in like the PCP like the primary care office or the pediatrician office or in the hospital how can parents and caregivers best advocate for the well-being of their child when they're you know confronted with a health professional that expresses a concern about weight or maybe alludes to it <laughs> alludes to yeah this their child is at risk for X, Y, Z chronic disease when that's likely not the case. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: I honestly, the health at every size book by Linda Bacon is like, it's been my Bible recently. (laughs) Um, And I really would recommend it to parents because even in the back of it, they have a letter it's on page 283. (laughs) <laughs> and it says like healthcare providers I'm just reading this straight from the book right now it says healthcare providers providing sensitive care for people of all sizes and it says it's a letter that you could literally even scan it has the copyright of health at every size at the bottom and you could literally scan this letter and just even hand it to the secretary or to the admin assistant or to the practitioner themselves and just you know have that be something easy that you can educate them on that's quick that makes them really seek their own bias because it's what like with your question I do think you know caregivers and parents should advocate and you know for the well-being and health of their child but it's also a lot of emotional labor when you're asking parents to not only they're trying to seek medical attention and and advice and service but then you're also asking them to again reiterate their own situation their own intersections and their own um you know, education and the things that they're learning with health at every size. And so it's really a lot of work for parents. And so I think on my end, I really, that's why I really like to advocate for like practitioners to be doing their own work (laughs) on, on learning this. And that's why I love that health at every size letter, because it can just be something the parent can hand to them and say, please read this before um, you're addressing my child's weight or BMI. They can say something similar, like, you know, is it okay if we have some blind weights where you're not telling me how much the child weighs or how, or telling the child, how much they weigh. And, you know, it's okay to just ask why, you know, would you recommend this for a kiddo who is, you know, X, Y, and Z size? Would you recommend this for someone who is in um, a smaller body? Um, You know, what is the research you have behind this? And the question that that last question, I think like, is a little bit tricky because they're going to reiterate research that they've been taught that is going to be anti-haze,
1: mm. right?
2: And so that's why really arming yourself with research that is haze focused um, is probably the best thing I can recommend for parents. And um, and then it's okay to literally just find a new practitioner. Honestly, honestly, and it sounds bad, but there are some fights that are the emotional labor is is traumatizing, honestly. And I, I want to say that I, I've used the word traumatizing
0: because I see it
2: and I see it in the families and I see it in the kids.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's scary as a parent to kind of speak up against, for the most part, against a health practitioner, even though they're trying to help you and, and care for you and provide care. It's scary to say, Let me question your crit, you know, let me question what you're telling me right now. It's especially like what you said when you're. Already overwhelmed and stressed out, and you're in this healthcare setting that's scary, and your child might be having some sort of their a response of their own that you're trying to manage. Mm-hmm. It is. It's hard to advocate for yourself, and so I I love that you do really focus a lot of your work on kind of helping other providers understand that it's their responsibility and not always just the parents. Um, Absolutely, vital work.
2: Yeah, yeah, I yeah.
0: we could go on and on I know (laughs) okay so speaking as a parent as a mom myself what are some recommendations that you would suggest for um at home and maybe ways that we could change our language to help foster a healthier relationship with food and bodies yeah I love this question just because language is
2: so powerful and it really is you know, it's how kids are learning. And it's how kids and like I love what Dana said on your last podcast, it's literally how they're surviving. Yeah. And they they're absorbing this and they're internalizing it. And if we're using language like good and bad, clean and dirty, even healthy and unhealthy, when you have that black and white language of, um, you know, this is good, this is bad, it really leaves it leaves the culture of diet culture to just sit there and like permeate in how we feel around food. And it leaves us to just be, you know, internalizing, okay, this is good. This is bad food and I'm good I'm bad if I'm eating this food and then it also leaves us and it leaves room for judgment you know if we're teaching our kid this good and bad food language what happens when they go to to school or play school or daycare and they point at someone else's food and they say that's bad or that's or that's poison um you know it's it just it's so it's it's harmful so I really and I I have a little bit of a I don't want to say issue. I'm like, (laughs) I'm like medium on the sometimes and always foods. Yeah, me too. I'm with you on that, Leah. And the reason why I'm medium is because, and this is just my personal preference, because my brain, the way it's wired, automatically then wants to go to, okay, there's meat, there's sometimes foods, always foods, and then there's never foods. Right. And what are those sometimes foods? Like, what is the intention behind the sometimes foods? Is it because you just sometimes have it culturally for a birthday party or a celebration? Is it that you sometimes have it because you're restricting it? Is it that you are sometimes having it because you don't have access to that food or you don't have the availability or the money for that food? It just, the sometimes food, it it has so much of a gray area and so much of a different
0: meaning behind it. Yeah, I think that that's such a great point, because I've struggled with that, too, in identifying sometimes and always foods. And I love that Evelyn Tribley and um, Elise of the Intuitive Eating, you know, book, they say, what do they say? They say growing foods and play foods. Yes, I love that. I think that helps frame that the point of identifying foods in those categories Mm -hmm. a little bit better because kids can conceptually understand. Sometimes we go to the playground and so that's play, you know, play foods. That's for mm-hmm. fun and that's for growth in that way. Mm-hmm. And then growing foods is how like sometimes we go to school mm-hmm. and that's growing and that's learning and that that's a little bit more um, approachable for a child to understand. Totally. And there was there's a dietitian. I think she's based out of Dallas
2: and I wish I could find her because I really want to give her credit for this <laughs> on this podcast. But she kind of coined the term. Um, foods that I like, foods that I love, and foods that I'm learning. Mm,
1: I love that. I like that too.
2: And, and what that, I, yeah, go ahead. And
1: that speaks to like food exposures a little yeah, bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And I, what I really like about that is because it doesn't really leave room for anything negative to be said about food um, you cannot like a food but you're also learning it maybe you've learned to only have it one way and you have it cut up or diced or in a soup or something totally different way and you're you've learned you know that you maybe like it a different way and um, you know there's some other dietitians doing amazing work I think in Australia where they're talking about like don't be rude to food um, you know because when you're when you ask a kid immediately you know did you like it 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 leaves them to either like respond politely (laughs) and maybe they didn't actually like it or it also kind of leads that insult for the caretaker parent who made the food well oh you didn't like it you know oh why not you know you kind of then it leads like leads to this interrogating process what i like about you know using foods that i like and that i love and that i'm learning is that you can have them point that out on a plate you can have them point that out while they're cooking you know this is something that i'm learning about this is something that i'm trying i think because language is super powerful. You know, the experience that we have with it is just we want it to be a good experience
1: overall. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I've done a couple years of like kids cooking classes. And I will say that like when I first started kids cooking classes, I had not been introduced to intuitive eating. And I wanted to make all the recipes kind of like healthified because that's what I thought, you know, parents would want from a cooking class for their kids. And I really tried to kind of transition the class and the language you used around class like um, I don't know if you've heard this one don't yuck my yum oh yeah yeah we also started talking more about like textures and flavors and colors like the sensory aspect of food rather than like do you like this or not? And we just kind of talked about like, what would you change? What would you do differently? So mm-hmm. I mean, there's these were older kids as well, right, right. with an interest in cooking. So that's well, just,
0: it's so interesting to me, too, because I think we're as adults, we put adult context onto the conversations we have with kids around food, with like our knowledge and mm-hmm. our experiences, but kids are so very much still learning and their Mm -hmm. taste preferences are adapting as they grow. Mm -hmm. And so i love any opportunity to leave it open-ended for them because what we might interpret as them saying one thing, they actually might be saying something completely different and we just haven't realized because the way that we asked the question, they answered it in the way that they are taught to answer it. And so leaving that open-endedness is so much more fruitful, no pun intended for, for these conversations around food, because we want our kids to grow around food and they're not, their preferences are going to change and they are their own individual. They are their own autonomous person with their own taste buds. So we can't really apply everything that we feel about food onto our kids, you know?
2: Totally. And I I think I love what you're mentioning, too, because it it makes me think of having a growth mindset around food. Um, And I like that kind of compared to like a fixed mindset around food. That fixed mindset really reminds me of that good, bad or that I like or don't like food or certain foods. Whereas that growth mindset constantly facilitates curiosity, which is so important in their food relationship. Um, because you know, the more we're curious around food, the like in the long run, the more variety we're going to have in our diet.
1: Mm. Right. And that speaks directly to intuitive eating, right? We have, we choose curiosity over criticism and compassion over. So we're always learning every time we eat as adults, we're hopefully relearning to eat intuitively just as kids. Are born <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so yes.
0: Tell, us, tell our listeners, if you don't mind, Leah, a little bit more about how kids are born intuitive eaters. Yeah. So
2: I I really saw this um, really prevalent in the hospital setting, just because you know you're. I, I worked with kiddos who are either preemies or even you know day old kids who maybe were just at the hospital for some reason, and they you know their instincts. It's literally instincts, you know, is to eat. And so they have reflexes, you know, automatically (laughs) built in. (laughs) And they will, you know, open their mouth when they're hungry. They'll cry when they're hungry. They'll put their hands to their mouth when they're hungry. Um, They'll squirm or they'll get stiff. And what it's called, you know, you'll call it the rooting reflex. I don't know if you've heard of that. And then, you know, once they're being fed, whether it's, you know, bottle or breast, De- depending on the development of the child, they will, you know, they'll push the rest away when they're full, they will spit up if they've had, you know, if they have physically had too much, they will turn their head away from the breast or the bottle. And this is really just a sign to me that, you know, even without speaking, you know, we have reflexes and we have intuition um, as newborns to regulate our hunger and our fullness and to regulate our body cues and what our bodies are what's happening in our bodies. I think Evelyn talks about interoceptive awareness and it's crazy to think that babies have
0: that. They just can't always have words for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting to me because we think of I think a lot of people when they're first introduced to intuitive eating think of it as Kind of counterintuitive, mm-hmm. which is basically just proof that we've unlearned yeah. intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. You know, we've unlearned. These habits are the the ways that we're in touch with our bodies or the ways that our body communicates with us. Mm-hmm. So to kind of reintroduce intuitive eating into our lives feels counterintuitive to diet culture and all the messages that we've we've been taught. So it's really interesting to hear from you. Like as a baby, we see intuitive eating. Happen yeah. now for uh, across all infants. Yeah, and
2: then we even see it, I mean, we do see it in toddlers and in elementary school as well. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a kid like mid ice cream cone or mid pizza slice, like put it down and go run and play. Like, you know, I mean, for some people that kind of mindset just isn't even anything they've ever seen before as an adult, you know, they would have to finish the ice cream cone, or they would have to finish the pizza or even take another slice of pizza before they would want to do anything else. And so it's crazy, you know, when, you, when you're when you really watching kids, it's not just a behavior thing. If they're they're communicating and they're also learning their bodies, but they're also trying to learn how to communicate with us. You know, one of the kiddos I care for, I think the other day on a post, she she wanted one more noodle. <laughs> until she was full. I mean, she knew exactly how much more she wanted and it was one more noodle. And then she went and played and it was like, I was like, wow, that is a whole nother level of interceptive awareness.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very specific. Yes. (laughs) I love that. And you know what, to go back kind of to like the social cue part of it. I've noticed with my own daughter, you know, she'll take a bite of a piece of pizza from the center of the piece yeah <laughs> like, the, best, the best part I've <laughs> from like a centimeter down from the top of it you know like and I'm like that's just proof that all of ours like that there's so much social implication around eating food that like I would never take a bite of pizza <laughs> anywhere but the tip of the triangle <laughs> <you know? laughs> yes totally funny. that's so flip. but it's like they just do what they, what right. they want and what they yeah have. Right. And that's okay. That's They're exploring a good thing. food. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's literally exploring food. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if it tastes different over oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So if we could, I know we're having a grand old time over here. <laughs> so if we could kind of, we're going to kind of go off, now, not on a total tangent, but in your experience, Leah, in your opinion, your experience, what has not generally taken into account by whether it's health professionals or society when it comes to counseling kids and families on nutrition and health?
2: Oh, this is a good question. <laughs> um, I, I think about this all the time because I, I really want to make sure I'm meeting all the intersections and understanding all the intersections of patients and clients and people that I work with. Just because I really think You know, as professionals, we have all this information and sometimes it's like, we just want to give it to the people, you know, and we just, then we're like, look at this new thing that I have, or look at this study or this research or, you know, what's happening. And it will fall on deaf ears if this person's or this family's basic needs are not met. And what I mean by that is, um, it's kind of based off of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I have like a little (laughs) picture in
0: front of me. (laughs) 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 Uh,
2: Yeah. But it essentially, it's a pyramid and it, it has at the very bottom, which is the foundation of this is physiological needs. And the physiological needs are, you know, food, water, warmth, and rest. And then you also have your safety needs like security and safety. And so I saw this all the time in the inpatient setting because it's really easy when you're in private practice to forget that. You have a lot of people coming to you who have privilege of knowledge, education, of money, finances, transportation, et cetera, who are coming to you for information. In the inpatient setting, you're you're seeing everyone. And it's so easy to treat everyone the same, but that's not effective and that's not really good care. And you know, when we're not understanding that this person I'm talking to, their biggest concern right now is safety and security. They're not even gonna want to listen to how much iron their kids should be getting. (laughs) You know, when they're when this person doesn't have access to clean water and food consistently, you know, how can I go in and tell them, well, they need to be having this many servings of this a day? You know, it's it's just entirely unrealistic. So I think that as like professionals and for other practitioners, if anyone else is listening, we really have to be acknowledging that, and we have to be meeting these people where they're at. And you know, the changes that we're going to make are with having compassion and understanding for their current situation. Um, I really feel like you know this is prevalent in the states, and I think a lot of people forget it. Do you mind if I share a few statistics? That sure, I- please. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm not a WIC dietitian, um, but I use WIC heavily for resources, and I think it's a really great resources for people. Um, you know, even practitioners who want quick little PDFs and other uh, studies. But it just, I I was looking, I think in 2014 that. Like 15 million people were eligible to receive benefits for the supplemental nutrition Pro- program for WIC, women, infant children. And what I mean by eligible is they they could have, maybe they didn't actually receive the benefits, but that's 15 million people in the US that are living within a certain percentage of the poverty line. And what I think about that is that, you know, this is also people that are this is assuming that they're even able to see a WIC. A clinic, that they're even able to have transportation to that, that they're even able to fulfill their WIC benefits, even if they're pers- prescribed by a doctor. And I think a lot of times when we're seeing these kind of populations that by the time they're needing assistance with food, it's almost already too late, right? They're needing assistance with a lot of other things in their life. Um, they have a lot of stressors. They have a lot of socioeconomic things that are oppressive systems that are keeping them in the places that they're in. And I really think, like, I think there's a, there's a food activist um, and a food justice advocate named Karen Washington. I wanted to give her credit because she wrote an amazing article, and it's about food apartheid. And I love this word instead of um, food deserts because it really talks about that, you know, it, it meets the intersections that there are so many different factors that are contributing to a person's health and a person's access to food. And I think that, as practitioners, you know we see a lot of people who have access to food daily, but we're if we're ignoring the people who aren't receiving access to food or who have oppressive systems that are keeping them from food, we're we're really doing an injustice to their health and their well-being. And I I really feel like if we're just getting caught up in the nuances of nutrition, healthism, you know, combating trending fad diets, combating diet culture, and we're actually ignoring some people that have basic needs, um, you know, we're we're really denying health for them. So that was just one thing that (laughs) that I mentioned that I just, I feel like a lot of practitioners forget.
1: Wow. That health equity is still a very prominent and serious concern yeah. and issue. Well, it's sobering to think about yeah. it like that, because
0: at a certain point, you hope that everybody has their basic needs met living in a first world country. But the reality is they don't. And we know that it's the numbers are speaking very loudly, telling right. us that they don't. And so, yeah, it's it's a really important thing to focus on. And I think it's really hard for people who maybe don't experience that type of, I'll say, trauma and, and lack of accessibility and resources. resources. You know, it's, it's hard to remember that that exists when we're trying to take care of our own individual family, but it's really important to tune in and realize that We're not all in the same situation. And you can't even judge that by the cover. You know, you you don't know that from looking at any given family.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I really, you know, I think this ties in with what we were talking about, you know, previously, I think earlier with kiddos risk for eating disorders and body dysmorphia and, you know, any other disordered eating risk factors in food insecurity, food apartheid, food access. This is a huge Thing for childhood nutrition. And, you know, when you're having families that are food insecure, they're going to be at a higher risk for binge eating, for saving food, for pocketing food, or they're going to be at a higher risk for, um, you know, certain illnesses and conditions just because of their socioeconomic, their current situation. And even their chronic situation, um, because some of this is generational too, right? So really understanding that and understanding even the culture behind it and the culture behind the oppressive systems that are keeping marginalized groups there is just one more step that practitioners can take so that we're not going into a room or going into seeing a client and just assuming. I think that's the biggest thing I've, I've learned is never assume anything. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, so Leah, then that kind of leads me to this question, which is because each family knows their culture and their family situation better than anybody else, what would be a good way to approach health and wellness and food for parents and caregivers based on the information that we've talked about and regardless of the size of their child's body? That's a really good question. I might have to think
2: about that one for a minute. (laughs) Sorry, can you say the question
0: again? Yeah, I didn't even know if I can say the question again. I just (laughs) basically like based on the information that we talked about today and all these concerning factors, and because each family is so different and we tend to have a very one-size-fits-all approach to health, how can you know individual parents and caregivers based on their family dynamic and based on their situation, regardless of the child's body size, how can they foster, you know, health and wellness within their family in a way that would be really beneficial to them?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. And I I definitely do not have all of the answers to this. But but just some suggestions is that, you know, whatever a family situation is, as a practitioner, give them grace and then also allow the family to give themselves grace and just understand that they're working with what they have. And as a family, you know, you're, you did the best with what you had and what you could. And if you're searching for something else, if you're realizing like, this is not working for my family. This is not sustainable. Um, You know, there's, there are resources out there that are free, you know, such as these podcasts. There are, if you're having, you know, trouble having access to things, you know, it's okay to get like library cards and check out the books (laughs) that we're talking about here. Or if you have access to buy them, you can buy the books and really try and be an example of what, you know, body acceptance and and body positivity looks like in your family. It can start with changing the language, you know, stop commenting on other people's bodies, on your own bodies, and, you know, focus on the joys of life. (laughs) And I know that sometimes in, you know, some populations, when you're not meeting your basic needs, this is really, really difficult, and it kind of falls on deaf ears. But there are some ways that, you know, you can kind of start thinking, you know, what do what did I need to hear as a child, start thinking generationally, you know, this what I've been hearing from my family, what my grandparents or my grandma or whoever taught me, you know, is that working? Is it sustainable? And really just look a little bit introspectively and say, okay, you know, what can I do with my current situation? You know, there are books, podcasts, there's therapy, if you have access to it, there's research on online free, there's Facebook groups, there's eating support groups. And you can follow accounts like follow, you know, Hayes and an IE informed, I'm, what I mean by IE is intuitive eating formed practitioners that are really working to educate parents. Um, you know, in my account, I try and make sure on Instagram that if I come across a free support group or a free Facebook group, I always try and repost it just because I know that, you know, access to information is hard. It's hard to know where to get information from because there's so much m- misinformation out there. But I think that you can start there, and then kind of build on on what really is reasonable and works for your family. Because I think in the long run, you know, you know your family and your situation better than any other practitioner. And there might just be one change that you can make that would be, make the world of a difference in mealtime, in food access, in your your body positivity or your body language that really can help your family and help your kids kind of cope with, I want to say the inevitable <laughs> diet culture, weight stigma that's going to happen. Um, that's the, I mean, that's really, I wish I had more answers.
1: <laughs> like you said, I mean, and we've said all families are different and it's hard to make generalizations because yeah. everyone kind of needs yeah. to figure that out for themselves, right? Yeah. They need to know. Mm-hmm figure out what is going to make meaningful difference in the lives of their families. And mm-hmm. like you said, Leah, like work on that one thing, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. changing language. I mean, that's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. It doesn't cost anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Changing language and, you know, doing that work within ourselves and within our family structures. Yeah. Right. Is that kind of. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I think too, like that speaks to the overwhelm of when you're a parent and you're learning something new, which a lot of people, intuitive eating and health at every size and kind of the body positive movement, that's kind of a new information for a lot of people. And it can be really easy to feel the overwhelm of like, oh my gosh, I've been doing it wrong or yeah. I did this yeah. wrong. There are all these things I want to change and and. That overwhelm can lead us to want to fix all the things all at once. And that's not necessarily the best way to do it. And I think what you both just said, which was like starting with the language or just starting to kind of educate yourself and then letting that natural progression of how that's going to play out for your family dynamic is the best advice you could give. So I appreciate. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: Yeah, and I think, I mean, for me, the health at every size book, just it really kind of armors you with a lot of information and a lot of a different mindset. Um, and I think, you know, even if you just t- can take one thing, like you said, that will make you make your life less stressful, make your yeah. life less overwhelming, that can come from anywhere, really. And that can be something you can hold
1: on to and cling to and then just grow from. It's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> So before we sign off with you today, you share a lot of wonderful things on your Instagram page. For somebody who doesn't follow you, and obviously we will link your Instagram page in the show notes, so everybody can go and follow you there. Because seriously, such good information is shared. Oh, thank you. Um, not being a parent myself, I'm just like that is that's such a good, I don't know, way life to, lesson. Life <laughs> lesson, or, or what is? kind of one takeaway or like one thing that you wish everybody knew about raising intuitive eaters and health at every size? Oh,
0: that's other than all of the other comments that we've already talked about today.
2: (laughs) I think... I think if you've come to this point and come to something like this podcast, like you're already doing a really good thing for your family. And I try not to use that like good, bad food language, but like this community and this lens on life is probably going to be one of the most powerful things for families and for kids um, to fall back on really when times are tough. And I think that, you know you're already doing great if you're here <laughs> and i think that it's it's important to just take it take it one day at a time that's the only thing i can really say is is one day at a time and and to at the end of the day, not compare yourself or your family to others. I think it's so easy when we see things on Instagram, we see, um, you know, these perfect little lunch boxes or these perfect kids with these perfect little clothes. And that's just a snapshot of someone's life and family. And they're going to want to make it the best snapshot they have because it's going online. <laughs> so I think that just to not compare yourself and there's I mean, there, that is like one of the hardest things to do ever. But if you can, you know, even have a mantra or have an affirmation or something that will rein you in when you go down the spiral of comparison, um, because you can't compare one, even you can't even can of compare your kids to each other, right? Like, you know, one kiddo has different needs than another. One person has different needs than another. One parent has different needs than another. So I think that, you know, comparing your journey to someone else's is just unfair and it's unfair to you. <laughs> right. And I think that it's, it's just important to take it one day at a time and really only compare yourself to like where you've been.
1: Mm. That's such a <laughs> lovely note. <laughs> Perfect way to end our yeah.
0: Thank
1: you so much, Leah, for your time and for your expertise and for yeah. all of the yeah. wonderful gems that you've shared. I mean, I feel like it's been a great conversation, really full of compassion. And yeah, yeah. I you can really like... hear the, the compassion,
0: like you said, Andrew, the compassion that you have for this work and for the families that you work with, Leah. So, thank you. I so appreciate all that you do for us as a community and, of course, for, for being on our show today. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Have a good one. You too. You've been listening to the Food Confidence Podcast. I'm Jennifer Bravo. And I'm Andrea Paul. If you have any questions about the things you heard in today's episode or have topics you'd like us to discuss in the future, send us an email at foodconfidencepod at gmail.com or follow us and message us on Instagram at foodconfidencepod.